Welcome to Immersed in Theology. This is the podcast where graduate students talk theology, church, and life. Please enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Ben, and I'm here with Luke. Hey! And Danny. Hey, everybody. And we're going to be discussing Henry Nowen's book, In the Name of Jesus. Luke, do you want to give us a quick rundown and overview of Nowen's book? Yeah, so basically what Nowen's going through is his own story, which presents a case for how to practically live out the life of Christ, how to, how to love the world now in the present, um, in a sense, the way we were designed to happen. So what happened was Nowen had a call to lay down all of the, all of what he had built and uh, and his experience and his I guess yeah just high status in the world and he went and he worked with mentally disabled people and what he found was when he was stripped of all that he had built up in himself he just had to love them for the moment for what that actually looked like and uh, and that these people didn't care about his academic ed- endeavors or um, yeah, just any of that, any of his worldly experience and what he had done and what he might have still gone on to do. What they cared about is just how he actually loved them in the moment. So what we're going to do today is discuss a couple quotes from the book directly and work through um, just questions we've come up with based on those quotes. And yeah, we'll just see where that takes us. And yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that overview. Yeah, so thanks. the first quote we got... Um, is, do you love me? And this is kind of in reference to John 21, 15 to 17. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to hear that question as being central to all of our Christian ministry, because it is the question that can allow us to be at the same time irrelevant and truly self-confident. So the question that we have out of that is, what does it mean to be irrelevant and self-confident at the same time? Mm. Yeah, so... This is a fascinating question. And like, even the way he worded it, like being irrelevant and self-confident at the same time, I think that's a good question worth asking because if you think of loving Jesus, right? Like we look at the new Testament and Jesus, like it's crazy how he demanded like allegiance, right? Like loving God meant obeying his law, obeying him. So it's crazy. Like um, you're talking about, Loving Jesus, do you really love me? So the irrelevance of that is in our culture today, and even within churches, um, us loving Jesus and like living the life that he has set out for us to live is Mm -hmm. irrelevant. We have to realize that is that Christianity is not going to be palatable um, to people the way that they want it to be. And then the the flip side of that is the self-confidence, having Mm -hmm. that at the same time. So um, I just think of like even... The question, do you love me? I think that communicates something about the nature of God is that um, it communicates that he was loving, right? On that cross, we, we don't just see um, Jesus being abandoned by his father, but at the same time, there's this um, paradox of us being welcomed into his family out of love. Right. So when we're talking about self-confidence, I think we have to realize that um Yes, that's happening at the same time because we're confident in our identity in Christ, that we have been adopted by the Father, and because of that, we can express that to others. Yeah, I think it I think in a way it can be almost a 
Because like, I think like the world looks at irrelevance and it's like, you're irrelevant, you don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You're just this little whimpering, mm-hmm. you know, person in a corner that is, and that's, I think, where you get the dichotomy of like self-confidence. Yeah. They lack confidence because they're irrelevant. But I think what's actually now I'm saying is that irrelevant is this idea of being, having no accolades, no accomplishments in your past or anything. Mm-hmm. N- your name is not tied to anything, right? right. But you are still confident. Yeah. You still have confidence in Christ, and but you are not confident in your past accomplishments, right? Mm-hmm. So in the mm-hmm. sense that you are irrelevant historically, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not irrelevant in terms of the world, like you're relevant to God, but you're irrelevant historically, mm-hmm. but self-confident in God. So, yeah. so how does that work then with like, let's say in, in, a, in the case of pastoral work, right? as we, or as any pastor, not even as specifically, any pastor gains status, you know, mm-hmm. and gains a following, let's yeah. say, and, and um, you know, how do, how do they practically, I guess, you know, you become more confident in yourself and your leadership abilities and people become more confident in you. How do you maintain that, that humility of irrelevance? Hmm. You know, any, any insight into that? Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it is like, as a pastor, you have to like be sharing with your people, not only on a Sunday, but like throughout the week that look guys, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the underdog here. Like I'm not the only one that is empowered for ministry. Like you guys actually have a part in Jesus's mission. So I think a way that you can actually communicate to people that you're not what matters the most in a church is to actually right. empower them to do what you do. So if right. you're good at leading people, if you're good at discipling people, maybe one of the most, um, I think, humbling things to do is to empower people to do what you're doing. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. I think something else um, is actually what Nalan did in, this, in the writing of this book. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it would actually be um, a worthwhile endeavor for pastors who have arised to this social media fame, mm-hmm. right, um, to actually do what Nowen did. Right. Because I think that's, that's a rude awakening. Yeah. That's a wake-up call. And I think that forces humility. Right, to take yourself out of your... Yeah. bubble and where, following, you're, where you're big yeah. and, and your following's huge and <clears> take <throat> yourself to people who couldn't care less right and just need you to serve them yeah, yeah however that yeah. fits in that mm-hmm. situation yeah what an interesting thought yeah i wonder yeah like and it makes me think you know obviously it comes down to humility and i think a lot of our talks today will yeah discussing this book it's all about humility but like how paul in philippians addresses himself as a servant of christ right and, and in different books, he addresses himself differently, but he specifically does in that book mm-hmm. as he exemplifies Christ to the the people in that context and how we are to also follow in the example of Paul, I guess, yeah. and, and exemplify a humility to those mm-hmm. who were, you know, leading, but in the same way serving. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I guess there's a flip there that you're not just a leader, you're a servant yeah. in that. Um, that's great. Um, next quotes that I think we should go through are the original meaning of the word theology was union with God in prayer. Today, theology has become one academic discipline alongside many others. And often theologians are finding it hard to pray. But for the future of Christian leadership, it is vital 
it is of vital importance to reclaim the mystical aspects of theology or our union with God in prayer so that every word spoken, every word of advice given, and every strategy developed can come from a heart that knows God intimately. Mm. So the question we have out of this is, what does it mean to know God? Is it experiential or is it academic? Is it both? Can mm-hmm. they both exist peacefully? Like the whole, try to explore that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So like, actually, so Luke was mentioning Philippians before, and there's actually a uh, two verses in Philippians that talks about how, like, this is Paul's life goal. And he, like, he gives a list of like credentials. He's saying, I was circumcised. Um, I learned under these people, whatever. But then he, I was born to this tribe. And then he goes on to say, um, all, like, all that stuff is garbage. And then he goes to verse 10, 11. He says, my life goal is to know him. Talking about Christ. To experience the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings. And to be like him in his death. So that somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So what I find fascinating about this statement is Paul's talking about knowing Christ. And there's, there's two sides to the coin here. So he mentions um, resurrection power. He mentions suffering. He mentions death and he, and he mentions like final resurrection, all things that are true of Christ. And what I find fascinating is like, on the one hand, there is something about knowing the gospel story. So the head knowledge or the academic knowledge, if you will, I think that's important in knowing Christ. But then there's the flip side of knowing God is that Paul says, no, you're just not knowing Christ. You're experiencing that resurrection power. You're participating in the sharing of sufferings. You're participating in being like him in his death. So I think, I don't think it's a, it's an either or. I think it is experiential to know God. Like you're participating in that. But it's also having a context for that. It's knowing the gospel story and how we fit into that. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I do think that knowledge and um, experience can't be separated. It, it makes me come back, actually, to the story of Isaac. Mm-hmm. When, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? And it, and it says God knows Isaac. Then he asks him to do this, and, and he goes ahead, and he Abraham does this. And, and, of course, we know the end of the story. Isaac isn't sacrificed. But then God says to him, now I know mm-hmm. you. Yeah, right. And and it's because Abraham followed through in the, in that action. Mm-hmm. So the knowledge became action. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I guess, you know, in this question, what, what does it mean to know God? Is it experienced academic, a bit of both? I, I, I really believe our academic knowledge is nothing if it doesn't become an action. Yeah, if it doesn't lead into an experience, you know, and I do believe we know God through experience. Yes, mm-hmm. we pray like, like now and talks about it and, and we, you know, we have the spirit and we grow in our relationship with God. That's a very experiential growth. Um, and we also grow by learning, of course, but ultimately that has to funnel into something. And that's where those two things are tied. It's got to become our, our action, our very being an overflow from, you know, either of those facets and that, that just becomes how we live our mm-hmm. life. I would I would say that it's I would agree with you and I, I think that it's experiential like I would say Christianity at its core is more an experiential oh, yes. uh, belief it's mm-hmm. not academic I mean there's academic to it mm-hmm. but it's an experience of coming you know God relating to man 
right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it's true in history, which that means it's now can be academic, right. but at its core, it's experiential. Mm-hmm. And then I think that the evidence for that is in the early church, Yeah. right? The early church had nothing academically to study. It was all passed through word of mouth mm-hmm. right, and right, experience, right. right? And so I think now what we should do is realize that knowing God is an experiential thing. And we have the blessing of being able to study academically God's word. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, this is a, yeah. this is a mo- wonderful bonus, mm-hmm. but this isn't the goal. Yeah, and I think yeah. that that can oftentimes be a challenge um, for people who have studied oh, like yeah. academically the Bible mm-hmm. and, and, and God's word and theology and, and all of that to then still recognize that, you know, their congregation, like experience, experiential, experiencing Christ is what matters most. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it's hard for someone to look at someone who has their doctorate or masters of divinity. Right. Right. And still say, yeah, but God could be giving me an experience that trumps your degree. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's this yeah. like, yeah, you know, the, the educational accolades, while not aren't bad, mm-hmm. can create this idea of like, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. Therefore I have to submit everything I am to, to them. Right. Yeah. I think about, I think about Henry himself now, maybe going to the mentally disabled, right. And working with them. And that's exactly what happened is he experienced God. You know, he, he came to them maybe as a leader with all this stuff. Right. right. And now how they see him is really how we learn from God. Like it's right. just an experience. He couldn't, he couldn't impart on them the academic knowledge he knew. Right. And that's not how they're going to experience yeah. God. Yeah. And and I don't think God just downloads academia on us either. Right. You know, yeah. that that like you said, it really is a bonus and it's a beautiful thing we should engage with and and desire to really seek God out more. Right. By but discussing, you place. know. But remember its place. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Because ultimately all we can give people truly is an experience of what Jesus is like. Right. And even think of like the end goal, like we're talking about prayer, like what exactly is prayer? Well, really all we're doing is, yes, we're engaging with God because he's revealed himself to us through his word. But ultimately what prayer does is it actually brings us into union with Christ. So again, it is somehow it always ties back to the experiential knowledge of being in union with Christ through his Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, the next quote we're going to be looking at is actually going to kind of lead us into an interesting political discussion. So I think uh, yeah. I'm excited about this one. Yeah. Dealing with burning issues without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness or divisiveness. Uh, because before we know it, our sense of self <clears throat> is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in the personal intimacy with the source of life, it'll be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. (laughs) So can you see this in our political climate? And how has this shaped our culture? So just to provide a little bit more context, when he says... Our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. So you look at our culture right now. Mm -hmm. That's such a true statement. Um, And I just think like 
you know, everything is a personal attack. You're attacking who I am mm -hmm. at my core. My beliefs become exactly what I am. That's where I get my identity is what mm -hmm. I create in my mind, mm -hmm. right? That's where identity is rooted. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when someone addresses something like, um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like homosexuality or something like that, mm -hmm. you are personally attacking who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. They're not an individual who's gay. They are gay, mm -hmm. right? Right. They're just yeah. one with what they believe about themselves yeah, or sure. what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you guys see this? Do, can you think of other examples of this? And then where do you think this has led our culture? Yeah, it's obviously a very interesting thing that's happened, you know, and, and it's caused a very individualistic mm -hmm. culture, mm -hmm. but yet in another way, you know, if you, if you tie yourself to your beliefs, you're going to become some, let's say, weird mix of your beliefs and that becomes your solid identity, right? The next person that maybe shares some of those, but not all of them becomes another hybrid mm -hmm, of right. beliefs. So the problem I see in this is everyone sort of um, culturally has some of the same, but not really any of the exact same. Mm -hmm. there, there's actually nothing that's a true identity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You you, right. you can make your own good, and that's awesome. And I identify with you on this front, right. but not on this front. So how do we how do we argue? How do we discuss? How do we agree when it's just everyone's got their own hybrid of all this all this belief system that they've made their core truth? Right, mm -hmm. becomes I, very difficult. I think we see that like in everything. Yeah, where like people uh, assign themselves in groups. Right. Based on what you're saying, mm -hmm. you know, they're part of the, uh, you know, the gay group or the transgender group or or, you know, uh, whatever group it might be. Mm -hmm. And yet inside that group, there might be there's still endless division, endless division yeah, in that group. Yeah. Right. And so then those groups subdivide and then they become even smaller. Yeah, microcasm. because everyone's seeking identity right. at yeah. the core. Yeah. So if now gay is not good enough, well, now I can be gay trans, you know, and, and that's going to then mm -hmm. become another division, which will become another division because everyone's trying to become unique. I think, I think ultimately where it can lead is this form of tribalism where like every person's a tribe, sure, like, yeah. you know, we're all in groups and that, that mm -hmm. gets segregated down to the point where you're back to the individual. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I think that's when right. you reach a difficult place because what is your identity now? Right. Well, it's, it's even interesting, like, we're, like our sense of self we're talking about identity and like how like our identity is actually tied to like whether or not like we hold to an objective standard of living or truth or whether that's subjective because like like luke was saying before like imagine no one has like a basis for god or personal relationship with him then of course you're going to have an opinion about everything and people might be saying similar things but really um they don't have something that defines them other than like what they're saying about their experience or their reality. So I think it's very important, like even as pastors or people that are preaching, I actually heard John MacArthur say this one, is that um, there's a lot of pastors that they try to like be so relevant and they'll try to like have all the latest stats and like incorporate that into, into their messages. Um, but he, he noticed a problem in a lot of preaching today that because we're trying to do that so much, 
we actually don't have a personal relationship with God to the sense of knowing his word. So like, if we're like, again, it comes back to that whole irrelevance thing. Like there's something about being irrelevant with starting with God, starting with his word. And then from there, actually being able to read into culture and give them an accurate um, presentation of, you know, what their reality is looking like. Right. So um, it just comes back to the word of God, I think. Right. So I think, um, you know, it's easy to point this out. Mm -hmm. It's easy to see it in our culture. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's easy to say, yeah, well, you know, my identity is in Christ. Therefore I can discuss things about me, my beliefs and still be a person rooted in Christ. My identity is still there. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's easy. It's easy to point that out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But then how, like our job as, potential future pastors mm-hmm. or communicators sure. is not just to point it out. Mm-hmm. No. Right. How can we talk to a culture like this, mm-hmm. keeping in mind what we've just discussed? Yeah. So like, how do you, yeah, right. how do you relate to someone right. who is like, all of my core beliefs are this. X, right. Right. Yeah. And you're saying, no, they're not like who you are is a, you have an identity in Christ. Like yeah. that's who you are. Yeah. Your beliefs are separate from that. Yeah. Right. So how can we talk to someone about one of their deeply held beliefs that they think is a defining characteristic or defining piece of themselves without directly attacking them? Mm. Yeah. Like I I think, so we were at at the multiply conference and one of the speakers was talking about what Tim Keller does. And um, if you read Tim Keller's books or listening or listen to how he speaks or preaches, he usually starts with actually deconstructing people's worldviews which is fascinating because um, I think for us today, like if, like if we're going to be talking to the people around us, like, like I've heard it said once, like you can't give people a stake if they're still holding on to their bone. Like you have to get rid of something first in them in order to be able to present truth and like the reality of Jesus into their lives. So I think um, like, yeah, like when it comes to that, like we have to make people question their own worldview. So it's not so much saying you're wrong, but actually getting them to think out loud and, and they start asking questions about their own worldview. You see this without how um, Alpha operates, that um, they never, they'll watch a video and listen to like a sermon or a talk about Jesus or whatever. But what's interesting is the hosts don't actually tell people or preach at them. All the hosts do is they facilitate questions um, in which people start thinking about Jesus and start thinking about their own reality. And I think we should take that kind of approach to talking to our cultures, get people to ask the question, well, if I'm tied to my own um, expression of reality, what does that mean for someone who believes um, that homosexuality is wrong? Like, what if that was my own identity? Would you question me then? Would you say that my identity is bad because that's who I am? So like, I think you can start making people question these kinds of things. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I do think cultural exegesis is such an important thing. And just to, you know, the, the Bible's written not to us directly, but for us. Mm-hmm. And and we've done cultural exegesis then for ourselves to apply the Bible, right. to find timeless yeah. truths. Mm-hmm. So how do you see the culture around you? How do you find the timeless truths, the things that they need to speak into their situation right now and, and approach them with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that that's good, but I think there's 
I've seen it. I saw like I see that all the time. Like you can see like what you guys are describing, mm-hmm. like that. You know, analyzing their worldview and pointing out like some of the flaws that are in it, and mm-hmm. that that therefore is what that means for them living out their life. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's an interesting thing that you can do, and I've seen it done by um, Abdu Murray. Mm-hmm. I watch a video oh, of his, yeah. and he's excellent. RZIM, uh, Ravi Zacharias, I think is great at doing this all the time with of all of his questioners. But it's actually like addressing, well, here's what God thinks of you. Yeah, right. Right? You know? And yeah. so, like, Abdu Murray, you know, when discussing homosexuality, like, he brought up, like, well, first, uh, you are precious to God. You are deeply, deeply precious. And that's what I believe about you. Right? That's mm-hmm. at your core. Mm-hmm. You are made in the image of God. Um, mm-hmm. And because of that, the thing that created you, the act that creates you, is deeply precious and sacred as well. Right. Right? So now, by complimenting them, right, you have separated them, or what you believe about them, mm-hmm. from their action. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? So now you can start to address their action right. separate from them. Yeah. Because you're saying, I believe that you are a sacred image bearer of God and therefore because you're that the thing that made you is sacred Mm -hmm. right and so because I because God loves and values you so much as a sacred image bearer he put constraints and how that comes about happening Mm -hmm. right and so all of a sudden their value Mm -hmm. becomes in in God or or our view of who they right. are, whether they disagree with you or not, they still walk away with, holy cow, that person values me so much, they're willing to offend me mm-hmm. and my action. You know? For something better. For, for something me. better. Yeah, and, and, yeah. That's, and that's the thing, because I, I feel like so often <clears throat> we just get in these, like, statistic-throwing contests mm-hmm. where we're yeah. throwing stuff down, right? And I think that worked mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now everything is experiential. That's, that's everything with our culture yeah. is just like, well, that's how it makes me feel, right? And yeah. less about truth. Like, truth is no longer really even a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you're appealing to deconstructing their worldview, all they end up doing is just going, that's mm-hmm. true for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then in our, yeah, like, like you were saying, like you're telling people you are an image bearer, like this is who you are in God. Like, like I think those things are very good. So I think our our danger then that we could fall into like specifically people that are preaching, pastoring, whatever is because we've been entrusted with so much responsibility. We got to make sure we know what we're affirming, right? Because there, there can be the danger of over affirming. And we've seen this in Christians and nominations in Canada today, where like people are um, walking away from church or they're not walking away at all because the church has walked away from orthodoxy. Right. Because you've over affirmed, you haven't, mm-hmm. you don't have that background knowledge of what true affirmation in God means. Right. It's so like, you're, you're right, Ben, like, let, let's affirm, but let's also make sure that we know what we're affirming. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any other comments on that? It's great. Awesome. Um, so next quote we have, now one says, one thing is clear to me, the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. 
Many Christian empire builders have been a people unable to give and receive love. Hmm. So I think this whole quote really comes to the idea of, of humility. Hmm. Um, and we're kind of, I think he's basically discussing the common problem that exists is as you grow and become more and more powerful, how can you humble yourself um, to still remain intimate with the people yeah. who look to you as mm-hmm. like yeah. their great leader, yeah. right? Um, and I think actually, too, that it also can address someone, like I, I completely believe in spiritual gifting, mm-hmm. but I think it also can challenge some people when they're just like, you know, I'm just a preacher and a prophet, mm-hmm. right? and I'm not good at this pastoral stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And while that may not be like your core of who you are and your core spiritual gifting, I don't think it excuses you from not trying. No. Yeah, of you course. know what I mean? Yeah. So I think so in this question, um, what are some practical ways to stay humble? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's I think off the bat, the biggest one is do things for people without them knowing, mm-hmm. especially in a leadership role, you know, constantly be behind the curtain and right. um and just serving mm-hmm. the people, you know, if it's a hierarchy and you're, you're the preacher or the pastor, you know, serve those people under yeah. you constantly serve your congregation. Mm-hmm. And I really mean it in the sense of like, without them even knowing that, you know, without doing marriage counseling where you're still the leader or whatever, mm-hmm. be, be praying for them. Um, and more than that, just be doing the behind the scenes work. You yeah. Know? No, I agree. Like just having like the willingness to be like unseen. Like we, we heard this the other day at the multiply conference. Like what about those no names and no faces in the Bible who are like, are probably going to have like the greatest reward and like whatever, like in heaven, because they sacrifice here on this earth, whether people saw it or not. Right. So like, I think like when we, when we have what we might see as like, Oh, like I don't, I don't want to serve this person because they're below me or no one's, no one's going to see this. No one's going to appreciate it. Like we should embrace those moments as they come and just realize that we're not, we're not doing it for a job. We're not doing it for a resume, but we're doing it essentially for the kingdom. And on the other side of eternity, we'll see um, not only what we'll be rewarded with, I think like in Jesus Christ, but I think as well, we'll see how those people have benefited from the sacrifice that we put in. Right. And being humble that way. Right. Yeah. I think it really ties back to the first question that mm-hmm. we had, mm-hmm. which was around being irrelevant and self-confident. Yeah. At the same time. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that really, and I think this is kind of a common theme throughout Nalan's book. Mm-hmm. It's just this idea of love and love requires humility. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. it could be because the opposite of that is then desiring power. Right. Like humility yeah. keeps your love genuine. Right. So mm-hmm. you, so you kind of have to, you got to protect it at all costs. Really. Yeah. In yeah. order to be effective at loving people, you have yeah. to be humble enough to actually bring the, yourself to their level. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, so I think it could look very different for different people. Oh, yeah. You know? And so I would say oftentimes it might be the opposite of your nature. You know, whatever, whatever your natural desire leans to, it would be to intentionally doing some of those things that are completely opposite. Mm. Yeah. If it's uncomfortable. Right. If you're uncomfortable, you're probably in a good place. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, um, let's move on here to another great quote here. 
Uh, so Dallin says, here we touch the most important quality of Christian leadership in the future. It is not a leadership of power and control, but a leadership of powerlessness and humility in which the suffering servant of God, Jesus Christ, is made manifest. Powerlessness and humility in the spiritual life do not refer to people who have no spine and who let everyone else make decisions for them. They refer to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they are ready to follow him wherever he guides them, always trusting that with him they will find life and find it abundantly. When, so we've just kind of discussed humility and how important it is. Right. Yep. When can humility just become cowardly? Hmm. Yeah. So, like, I actually think of my my own upbringing, and like when when you're growing up in like independent churches, um, God, you know, God blesses those churches and the leaders of them. But there's often this um, like there's this mentality that like you know what I just have to like I have to take this and there's nothing I can do about it. Like if people are gonna treat me like garbage, like like I, I will I will be okay with that to the point where these people will come to my church for years and they'll never change um, how they're stepping all over me. And I actually saw this growing up where like I I so closely associated humility um, with just uh, powerlessness and letting people walk all over you. And um, that's not the way that Jesus operated. Like there were there were times in Jesus' life where yes. He was literally stomped on on the cross, but then he also asserted and was bold when he had to be, right? He he rebuked his disciples. He rebuked um, the Pharisees and other people when he had to. And I think a part of humble leadership um, will actually have to do with you asserting power appropriately when needed, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's not it's not one or the other. Like there's there's a balance that you just have to play out within that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I just think a great gauge is um, like if being cowardly is on one end of the spectrum and, and you're desiring courage, I guess, as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And then on the further, the further side would be, I guess, reckless. Mm -hmm. You know, you have cowardly, reckless, and in the center is perfect courage. Mm -hmm. Then um, it's just a, it's a good gauge to or it's a good practice as pastors to, to find where you are on that spectrum and, and be praying through that even and asking where, where do I stand mm -hmm. in this? Am I courageous? You know, cause that's also a great question. Mm -hmm. What yeah. does that look like? Or asking like, if this wasn't hard, would I do it? Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's people who can lean more like I'm more of an accommodator Right, so mm -hmm. I would accommodate people before mm -hmm. I would confront them, mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I could easily go to in the name of being accommodating people, just not addressing problems or being mm -hmm. coward about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, knowing where you sit in that scale, and then knowing where your battle is going to be, I think is often. Yeah. I think a lot of it too comes down to the knowledge that you have of scripture and the community that you've surrounded yourself in totally. um, to help point that out. Because I think a lot of the times you can be so, uh, you know, like you, you look at it like people get lost in the woods all the time, mm -hmm. right? Like that happens all the time. 
and you need someone to help get you out or someone or a device that you where you can see yourself inside that forest in the context of the greater landscape. Mm -hmm. So I think at times, I think this is where the value of community is so strong. Um, when you're in that forest and you don't know, you know, whether you should be addressing this, whether it's cowardly or whether, you know, mm -hmm. you're actually doing what God is calling you to do. It's so important to have people kind of exist outside of that. Right. Yeah. That can yeah. then speak into it and say, yeah. no, like, this isn't cowardly. Like, you mm -hmm. need to do this. This is just yeah. going to be hard. Yeah. You filter it through community. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So I think the last quote we'll go with um, yeah. is uh, one of the last lines in Alan's book, actually. I leave you with the image of the leader with outstretched hands chooses a life of downward mobility. It is the image of the praying leader, the vulnerable leader, and the trusting leader. May that image fill your hearts with hope, courage, and confidence as you anticipate the new century. So the question is, what does downward mobility look like? <laughs> yeah, like, even when, when you were just reading that quote right now, I thought of um, Moses, right? Israel's fighting a war, and... What happened was Moses was raising his hands and every time he had outstretched hands, the people were winning. Like his people were um, su succeeding at actually defeating their enemies. But when he laid down his hands, um, they were losing. And I, I think you can apply that to leadership. It's like um, when you're stretching out your hands, you're actually putting in effort. Like it's not going to be easy. Like they had to put a rock under him. And who did that for him? That was that was Aaron and I believe Joshua that actually supported Moses in these stretching out of hands. So like kind of what Ben was saying about communities, like you can actually have um, people around you to help you like get through the hard stuff of like, whether it's ministry or just practically serving other people. It's like, that's what downward mobility looks like. It's actually putting in effort and being okay with it being hard. I think. Yeah. I see it as this, I mean, a pursuit of humility is yeah. downward mobility. It's mm -hmm. that constant getting underneath each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you pursue to be a servant of one another. Yeah. Constantly pursuing that. Um, and in, in Christ's case, to the point of death. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's mm -hmm. our example. It doesn't end ever. There's never enough of being a servant. And now I get to be the big leader for a bit. Mm -hmm. It's, how do I continuously yeah. become a servant? I think it kind of ties back to, like, I always like to think super, super practically. And, like, I think it's it really comes down to, like, leading by example. Yeah. Right? So, if, with, with, But it never ends. That, right. That and never and so, like, if, if you desire this from the people who you're leading, mm -hmm. you've got to lead that by example. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So if your desire to create an environment where people are supporting each other, you've got to be the first one that supports them. Mm, yeah. Right. And I think that would be. Yeah, because that that really creates this conviction of when you don't like where your organization or your church or whatever it is that you're leading is, <laughs> is going. Right. It's like the only way that you are going to fix it is by acting that out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's forcing that downward mobility that mm -hmm. not that it's not a downward mobility in position necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's a downward mobility in action. Mm -hmm. We're saying like, what will you do about it? Yeah. That? And so like in when I was working in business before, one thing that they always said is really uh, important as you move in 
into supervisor roles or, or uh, plant manager roles mm-hmm. is like oftentimes the best plant managers are the ones that walk around and will pick up garbage off the floor. Right. Right? Because yeah. they're setting that example. Yeah. They're, they're saying, hey, this company, this plant that we're managing mm-hmm. matters enough that I'm, I'm the big leader, mm-hmm. going to actually yeah. do the janitor's job, yeah. which is like the lowest job that you can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So it's just that willingness to continually... Uh, and then through that, people actually, and it really works, like the right. culture actually shifts to it's like where yeah. everyone starts picking it up, mm-hmm. right? So that actually yeah. starts happening. So mm-hmm. as a pastor and even, you know, taking that just right on, like how yeah. are you treating not only your flock, but your community around you? Yeah. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially outside of the Sunday. Yeah. 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 That's a great way to see it. Awesome. So I would say... Yeah, the big takeaways for me in reading uh, Nalan's book was, I think, that connection of humility and love. Right. And how they have to exist together. And also the importance of loving someone in the moment, not relying on your past accolades or what you've done in the past or not what you hope to do in the future. And I think for us right now, especially as we're working on our MDivs, um, and there's like a hope of what we can do later on, Mm -hmm. it's so important to not let that hope, you know, make it so that you push aside someone that's right in front of you right now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, loving people in the moment, in their moment, and then the humility that love requires. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Any other thoughts from, from you guys about what you took away? I, I think you, you summed it up well, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm inspired by the book. I really loved reading yeah. it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. This was great. Awesome. Guys, thanks so much for talking. Yeah. Look forward to doing it again. All right. This has been an Extend Network production.